How do you start a school from scratch? How do you choose staff to join you on your entrepreneurial journey? How do you empower that staff to do more than they've ever done before? And how do you create an organization that loves its customers first? In this case, pre-K and elementary school children. These are some of the questions we ask Harrison Stewart, founding headmaster of the startup Episcopal School of Nashville, on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. We explore the role of virtue in work and family to remind you that fortune is often found in the path of reason. I'm Tom Noser. Harrison Stewart is the driving force behind one of Nashville's most dynamic new institutions, the Episcopal School of Nashville. Harrison is the real deal, the kind of level five leader who can build a vital organization from scratch. Harrison started his career as the director of development and a sixth grade math teacher at the Episcopal School of Knoxville. He left there to become the director of admissions at his alma mater, the Woodbury Forest School in Virginia, where he could have had a great job his whole life and never lost a minute's sleep worrying about payroll. Instead, he chose to pursue his dream and join a group of enterprising Nashvillians who wanted to build a quality Episcopal school anyone could afford, a school that welcomes everyone and a school that's an essential force for good in its community. Harrison is our guest on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. You're an extremely busy person. Well, thank you, Tom. This is a real pleasure. I, I appreciate uh, your inviting me on, and I look forward to our conversation today. Yeah. So um, talk to me about the founding of Episcopal School. I mean, you all have been through quite a bit to get to where you are, and you're on the edge of some really interesting changes. So talk to me a little bit about the history of the school. Well, it's interesting. Uh, this has been, if there's ever an organic story, this is it. Um, you know, this literally, uh, this idea started in a, in a front yard of a home here in East Nashville uh, between a Grammy award-winning musician and a Trarian cab driver, and both were uh, looking at their academic options here in East Nashville. And um, one, uh, our board chair, had won a lottery spot at the Magnet. And the cab driver next door, child who played with uh, our founder's daughter, did not and uh, faced a really unsettling school situation. And so um, our founder, Catch Secor, uh, went about the business of gathering information about founding an independent school and went to the bishop uh, and asked the bishop if there were was an Episcopal school in Nashville. And the bishop said, you know, it's really interesting, uh, Catch. There's been several startup opportunities, but uh, they've never taken off. And we'd always love to have an Episcopal school in Nashville. We don't have the resources nor the time at this, t- uh, at this point to really help you, but I would be happy to pray for you, and I'd put you in touch with some people that were involved with the last startup attempt, and maybe that will see what happens and keep me mm-hmm. posted. And so <laughs> it's fascinating. Catch who, who's really his father had been a founding independent school head, mm-hmm. um, knew something about that. He'd, he'd moved around the country to his dad's different schools and uh, seen his dad as a founding head of school, and so he'd, he could see it. He just didn't yeah. know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, Tom, it was the quirkiest uh, meeting of the world. It was when it, East Nashville uh, clashed with Bell Mead, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Nashville. And um, it was a really um, – you would never put this group of people together uh, for any other reason than to, uh, than to start a school, I suppose, an independent mm-hmm. school for which they all had – a different dream, uh, right. but they had the same passion. And uh, that was about seven years ago. And mm-hmm. now here we are just moving into our, our new facility uh, after uh, completing our fourth year of school. It's been a, it's been a wonderful story, but yeah. uh, organic and voluntary um, all along the way. I was hired about five years ago mm-hmm. uh, to move my fa- family here to Nashville. I worked at for an independent school in central central Virginia. And um, I remember I was an admissions director and I was reading, We, if you're in the independent school world, you typically, if, particularly if you're in administration, mm-hmm. you always get the head searches that open up. And I saw about right. this founding Episcopal school in Nashville. 
Right. Uh, and it, it struck my interest because I've, I had been on the staff of a founding Episcopal school in Knoxville as my first job. And mm -hmm. uh, I knew something about what I was reading. Mm -hmm. And I was at a 120-year-old institution with a $450 million endowment. And it was a terrific job. I was traveling the country, visiting independent schools. and uh, But there was something about the old modular classroom that was calling. <laughs> and... <laughs> I couldn't drop the I couldn't drop the idea when I, that night my wife who's in independent school recruit, recruiting got the same email and yeah uh, she, we both had the same idea and since then it's been uh, just an, an incredible ride. We moved here five years ago. I spent the first year in a planning year, mm -hmm. uh, and then the, these past four uh, here in the development of Episcopal School of Nashville, the country's newest Episcopal school. So um, Anna, my wife, um, spent time in uh, Mississippi during integration, and um, her family was committed to public schools. And uh, so they, they felt like there was a, um, a important societal mission that, uh, to support public schools. And you said that part of the founding of this was that there were people who knew one another who couldn't go to the same public school. One of them had gone into the magnet and the other one hadn't, and they were unhappy with their choices. How do you see private school coexisting with public school? I mean, one of the classic criticisms is that it tends to pull resources away, you know, that the best and the brightest go away and the public schools are left with uh, people with fewer resources. How do you respond to that? Well, it's a great question, and it's a question that I feel like I've been working with for, for quite some time. Um, East Nashville, there is no question, is a very proud public school uh, community. There are um, several charter schools that have started up here recently to, to great success. Uh, and Nashville doesn't need another independent school. Uh, there are approximately 74 independent schools here in the Nashville area. And to my knowledge, three operate with a, with a waiting list and admissions. And so... There are plenty of seats for folks that that are interested in this. Um, what what we're creating here is far different than the typical independent school in, in Nashville. We were sure to recruit leadership on our board from the public school sector from the very beginning. Um, this zip code and the zip code just to the north of us. Um, it probably sees the greatest disparity in educational options. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're really looking at a, a, a school that is um, well under-resourced, mm -hmm. uh, enormous turnover in staff from a, um, a racial demographic, very segregated. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there are the magnet schools that are some of the very best schools in the city. Uh, they're not quite as diverse. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you go through the lottery system to get into them. Um, now, I listen, if this neighborhood, if, if the underserved children could go to the magnet schools, we'd be all for it. But what mm -hmm. we've learned is that uh, there's there's enough hurdles in that process that uh, it begins to filter out the true diversity of the neighborhood. And so what we founded this school to be was not an opt out. Mm -hmm. um, this was not a school. Uh, to take the very best and the brightest and the socioeconomically most advantaged and pull them out of the system. In fact, this is so that that cab driver had a choice for the, for his daughter. Mm -hmm. um, this, this school has been intentionally priced well below the average, nearly by half of the other independent schools uh, here in the city. As, as you saw when we toured this building, this was mm -hmm. a uh, we are refurbishing a, a historic public elementary school building, repurposing it, because uh, we feel that if we want to be able to keep this product affordable to the community, um, it's best served to, to you know, we're releasing this building. It's a conservative mm -hmm. mood. We're not getting into the whole facility uh, project at this point. Um, our hope is that the children that are forgotten, and perhaps the children that know no independent school option, they've never mm -hmm. been welcome to to um, to apply, will do so here. Mm -hmm. Because we feel that uh, as an independent school, we can serve as a free choice. 
We're not recruiting students actively um, from the public school system. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but, you know, our we had a great board member uh, who's recently resigned. She was uh, on the school board. She was a public school principal uh, several times over, a public school teacher uh, and real advocate. But she could say that you know, we need this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the community needs this opportunity. And that uh, if we're careful uh, in the way that we recruit our students and we're able to do that with equity, then we'll achieve the dream that we want, and that's to um, do exactly what we've done, and that's discounting. We discount 50% of our tuition revenue to allow students who can't afford independent school to come to school here. Mm-hmm. Um, we would always, always, and we do it all the time, uh, for families that need uh, superior resources to stay in the public school system. Uh, you know, the, the public school system has a lot to offer, but know what you need and, and be ready to ask the questions. And so many, many times we don't necessarily enroll a student here that's looking for a new option. We're working with those families to, to uh, teach them what their out- options and their rights actually are right where they are mm-hmm. uh, to keep them in the school system. So we just want to be an advocate for children and an advocate for education uh, here in an area of the city that that has no independent school and no, really no true option. So what what drew you to um, education initially? What is you? It's the kind of um, career that often people feel a calling towards. What would you say was it that drew you to be an educator? It's a good question. Um, you know, when I roam these halls, I always stop at second grade and I peek my head in and I say. Children, girls and boys, now I know second grade better than any one of you, including your teacher, because I had to take it twice. I was a terrible student. I was held back. Um, I was nearly uh, like a year and a half older than most of my classmates by the time I graduated. Uh, It it really struggled through my academic career. Uh, It was until my high school career when I really was introduced to teachers that became not just sort of teachers, but friends, and they went shoulder to shoulder with me, and um, it, was a, it was coupled at that time with a summer camp experience where uh, I would go work in the summers, uh, and the head counselors, would, many of which, because it was summer break, would be mm-hmm. educators working in independent schools, and so I can't tell you why I'm here. I'm mm-hmm. certainly um, the one that's the least prepared to be successful in this building when I think of all the teachers and all of the great degrees and experiences that they've had. But I've always been passionate about people. I love community. And a school is an imperfect community because it's yeah. it's simply built. It's made up of humans and we mm-hmm. and we all make mistakes and we're all learning. And I think that a, a school is a place where we can all truly actually be ourselves and be vulnerable. Uh, if we treat it for what it is. And um, I can't tell you the exact thing that drew me to this industry, but I just right. always knew. I didn't necessarily just want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a head of school. So mm-hmm. um, it's just always sort of been an innate interest. Well, you're you're very much um, in a startup situation. You're very much an entrepreneur. Um, so your school has added one grade a year for, I think, the past four years. And um so the process that you've built, sort of one grade at a time, to me is very similar to the process of creating a new product. And one of the things that you start off with typically when you're building a product is you have some idea about what the need in the market is and why you have a unique ability for, to fulfill that need. And then typically, as you start to deliver your product, you find out that you were wrong, that there's either, the need is either different or your match to the need is different than you originally anticipated or there's a a critical gap that you have. What's something that you've learned in the last four years that surprised you about what it was like to actually start the school versus when you were in that planning phase? Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. I, you know, I had a question. I'll never forget. I, you know, you would imagine that in that planning year, the first thing that I tried to do was be in touch with any founding head of school in the country that I could. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget. I, I connected with a, a head of school in Chicago and. We were talking about the stress of the planning year when there's just nothing. There's nothing mm-hmm. in place, and you're sort of creating every aspect of 
of a school. And, and, and as a school, you know, that first day, you got to be ready to roll. Everything's got to mm-hmm. turn on. Um, you can't just sort of halfway deliver the program. So it's a, it's a daunting year, but I'll never forget when he said, if you think this year is hard, you just wait till next year. And I thought, man, you are so crazy. If we can launch this and it gets off the ground, I'll be so grateful mm-hmm. that I will never, I would never say something like that. Well, he's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And every single year it gets a little bit harder. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think back to, to really early on and, and certainly there were some things that played in our favor, which mm-hmm. um, were sort of make or breaks. Um, however, now looking back at when you mentioned, you know, you think there's things that you may never do. That's the whole thing with this is mm-hmm. we're proud of a lot of the things that we've done and we've accomplished and created. And, and those are becoming cultural components of the school. But there is a heck of a lot that we will never try again. I mean, mm-hmm. we have run into to walls. We have uh, made poor decisions that parents have, you know, we've learned what sort of that call and response is. We mm-hmm. know how, now before just jumping into something, the, the mm-hmm. steps that you want to take before you do it. Um, you know, honestly, looking back, we were so eager to, to start the school. Mm-hmm. It may have been wise to wait a year. Um, you know, there, I've heard of that happening in independent school startups where um, if it's not ready, don't start. You just, mm-hmm. you know, you continue to resource and you continue to work until until it's a launch. But I would say that it was such an ad hoc startup group mm-hmm. that we felt the fire would burn out if we didn't if we if we didn't start. And, you know, whether or not we could have waited a year regardless of that, regardless, mm-hmm. if we'd given ourselves more time, would it have been a a bit, let's see, I guess more, a better resourced mm-hmm. enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do think that one of the things, some, when, I, when asked, how do you found a school? Yeah. My response is generally, you, you create deadlines and, and, and you work to them because the deadlines force the work to happen if yeah. you're accountable. And it's so interesting, you know, that, I remember worrying about the health department and the fire mm-hmm. department. And it's, it's that series of walkthroughs in the department of education. And the, mm-hmm. by the time you've done everything that everybody wants, you kind of got a product that, that mm-hmm. works. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, you know, looking back on this, I, I often think to myself, the average um, ten, tenure of a independent school head right now is about seven years at a, yeah. at a, at a school location. Mm-hmm. And so we're used to, to several jobs in our in our lifetimes. And I always think, well, in the next startup, we're going to do it this way. <laughs> and I've a- I actually have a file where I make those notes. Like, don't forget. <laughs> oh my! So you think you'll do it again? Oh, I think it's in the blood. I, I think yeah. that I got a taste a decade ago in Knoxville mm-hmm. in a founding yeah. school and. Um, you know, you can grow so fast in an opportunity like this. Your your yeah. your your professional growth is immeasurable. And yeah. I'm able to work with people. You know, the people that come that want to work here mm-hmm. uh, are atypical. These are people that when they came to work for us, we didn't have the resources. We were modular buildings in a in a parking lot and yeah. um, in a former homeless campground. And we have teachers here that have 30 years of experience. And one of the greatest quotes that Katie Donald, our assistant Mm -hmm. head told me one time, Mm -hmm. I feel like I've been preparing my entire career for this 30 years in well established schools. And so Mm -hmm. what you get is you get pioneering faculty that are really, um, I think like-minded. And so culturally you're able to, to sort of maneuver better together um, mm-hmm. because you have that entrepreneurial instinct. Uh, you know that it, you're going to have to go a little further than the typical um, person peer in this industry. Mm-hmm. And um, what I can give these people is uh, more growth than they could ever expect. There is a, I have a, um, one of our wonderful, a great example is a, you know, we met, met a, um, 
a great woman at the YMCA who was somewhat right. stuck in her career, grew up here in the neighborhood and uh, attended public schools, as a matter of fact, and mm -hmm. um, had one of the most beautiful personalities I've ever met. Just a total starter, self-starter, obviously a hard worker, but so culturally fluent. Mm -hmm. Could meet, talk to anybody, uh, any age group, any different demographic. And she now is an independent school admissions director three years into her career, which is a, you know, that is a, it's a frontline position and yeah. she'll be able to network throughout 4,000 different independent schools around this, this country, um, very, very shortly. And mm -hmm. I love that opportunity to empower because you can't go out and hire the greatest admissions director right. in the country and bring them, them in, even mm -hmm. though you know them. Mm -hmm. But you're empowered to go find the most magical personality that you possibly can that would be willing to do the work and mm -hmm. to learn. And all of a sudden, you've created a new opportunity for the independent school world. So I see myself not only as a school founder here, but I operate on a platform which is funneling new families that don't know about independent schools and new faculty and, right. and volunteers uh, through just a measurable opportunity due to a lack of resources. So when I hear you speak, I can really hear how committed you are in your heart to this work. Um, that's one of the reasons I love talking to you is that your, um, your sincerity and your love come through really strongly when you talk about the school and the people in the school. But you also have a home life. You have a, you're married, and do you have children? I have four children. You have four children. So that's I do. A that's a demanding environment. How do, you, how do you go home and be present for them when you've got all these people, all these children, all these teachers, these parents who are dependent upon you to, uh, to lead them through what can be some pretty difficult circumstances? That's a great question, and, and it, this has certainly taken a toll on my family. Um, part of the reason that we moved here, I was actually working at an um, all-boys boarding school, and, and we, were, we were so happy with our two boys, and we had a great independent school in, in the Virginia town that we lived, but we're surprised with the two blessings, uh, our <laughs> twin daughters. And it was, we immediately realized that the elementary school business was calling, not mm -hmm. high school. And so, mm -hmm. um, one of the great things that has been a dream come true is that, uh, when I come to school in the morning, I come to school with my four children and, and they know what I'm doing. And mm -hmm. to have them sit in my office in the morning is, you know, I'm getting ready to, for this school day and, and to have them here and then driving back, uh, you know, I get, well, my wife will be in the, in the carpool line to pick them up. But when I get home, I hear all the stories from the school classrooms that day. Mm -hmm. And it's really special. And that, and that makes it pretty easy to re, um, mm -hmm. connect with, with my children. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, like any startup, uh, and, and for the founder of any startup, if you don't manage the boundaries, they'll, they'll eat you alive. And, in a in a in something like this, I, I suffer from the fractured thinking. I mean, you can never, you can't, you can never fully close the loop on anything. And you know, my brain's spinning at home when I get at home at night. And mm -hmm. and but the kids, I had great advice one day from somebody who said uh, my coach, and he said, "Listen, Harrison, when you get home, do you change your clothes?" Mm -hmm. And I asked him why. And he said, so that your children don't see the head of school and your wife knows that you're back. Yeah. And that to me has been something that, that I've, I've really tried to do is when I cross that threshold of the house, you know, I become dad, I become husband, but obviously, you know, 9 PM comes around, you flip the laptop back up and you get back to work. Um, mm -hmm. there's just no question about it, but it's a balance. I'm just so fortunate that. It's a school that my children can attend, and yeah. it's been a real family affair. So it used to be that um, so that the concept of school as we know it today is relatively new in civilization, where children are leave the home and then they go to a public institution or private institution, and they're, they go through a, a set curriculum by professionals. This is relatively new. And there's certainly a counter movement to this in the homeschooling movement. Um, 
And so this, this idea of taking a child out of a natural environment like the home and putting them into a place where they learn, um, they learn disciplines, which is kind of arbitrary collections of knowledge. Um, and, uh, and then there, the idea is that, that, that learning that discipline, they'll apply it in their life. They'll apply it at some other, some other time. There's like, you're, you're in an interesting situation on in that your kids have kind of the full loop. They see both the school and then they see you as a creator of the school. But for a lot of people, school is a foreign environment. It's something where it feels unnatural. It feels artificial. Um, and uh, particularly if you're, you're working with kids who have low socioeconomic status, um, they're already you know, potentially in homes with very few books. They may have relatives who are illiterate. They may be um, have literacy challenges themselves. And if you have poor literacy, it affects every part of your school performance. Um, how do you make a, a context where, or an environment where it doesn't feel artificial, where everybody, where the community there can, uh, can accept and embrace kids of all different sorts of backgrounds? Well, th that's a great question. It, it is a great question. And you know, What's interesting, you mentioned it is a relatively new phenomenon that we go to mm -hmm. these, that we mm -hmm. go to schools. It, it's interesting to think that every American has only really one thing in common, and that is um, if they grew up in America, they went to school because it's required mm -hmm. by law. And so it's school is something that we all have perspectives, experiences and opinions on. Mm -hmm. I believe in uh, having a great diversity of options of schooling out there. Um, I'm not a pro-independent uh, con public. I think anything, listen, it's got to be the most important thing is that the, the child feels loved, uh, challenged to an extent, and known. Um, and mm -hmm. that's what where teaching happens. And so if that can happen, uh, for a, child, a student's experience, irregardless of what type of school, including homeschool it is, mm -hmm. um, that's wonderful. What we do, and um, I, I just I go back to my roots of being a poor student, and mm -hmm. I have always wondered why I, I was a poor student. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, we moved as a unit through mm -hmm. work, uh, you know, our class. I mean... It's like that you walk out of the math test and everybody's mm -hmm. arguing, was it negative 241 or was it negative 250? And I'm going, why did I get four? <laughs> uh, you know, like the, the whole class is just mm -hmm. like, but, but, and I feel, I guess I feel, I feel for that child that feels lost. And so what, yeah. what our motto is here is that we will reach each child where they are. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're an Episcopal school, which has a Christian and mm -hmm. we can talk about that in a bit and I'll, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll talk a bit more about that. But if we refuse mm -hmm. to stop working with a child, regardless, uh, because we start with early childhood, you don't even, you don't really realize learning differences until they begin to reading and, and they start right. learning to read and you, so we've got them here. We, we enroll students in pre-kindergarten that are sure to have uh, learning disadvantages um, that right. we have no idea about, particularly due to the different backgrounds that they come from. You're exactly right. I mean, there are different resources behind every child that comes to school. And so what we have built this program to do is it's really solid on literacy, mm -hmm. uh, reading and writing, uh, numerical literacy. We want children to get the core curriculum, and we want it so badly that we just hired, uh, you know, we have a learning specialist full-time on our staff now for, a mm -hmm. for 90 students. You would mm -hmm. think that's crazy in small classrooms with teachers, but I want to make sure that every child in this school is reached uh, mm -hmm. and that we can, uh, we're under the hood from day one. Um, every, we're all under construction all the time. Mm -hmm. The most critical years of our life are in these adolescent elementary years. And uh, if I can get these children to a point where they have a true self-efficacy, they're, they're confident, mm -hmm. not like I was. They're mm -hmm. confident enough to say, I don't understand it and realize that that's not a, a problem. 
mm-hmm. then I think we've done our job. And that's what we're building. And that's what I think our teachers really all believe in here. This mm-hmm. is a school, I'll tell on it, that's being built by teachers. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that teachers want is for their children, their students to be successful. Mm-hmm. And if we keep them uh, on the planning forefront, then we will always be the school that loves its, its students. Do you ask the teachers to plan together or do you have them plan independently? So it's, it's a little bit like, um, so in a business or creating a product, you have different functions. They have to get together to deliver a consistent product to the customer. In your case, you're defining that as you want to love the kids and you want to challenge the kids and you want to reach every kid. And so those are, those are broad principles that you could tell your faculty, these are the three things. And they wouldn't necessarily have to have like, well, we're going to have an interdisciplinary unit on the space program. And so we'll do read a biography in English and then we're going to do some geometry and math. And then in science, we're going to shoot a rocket. You don't uh-huh. necessarily have to do that to achieve that end. So do you do you ask, does that happen organically where your teachers collaborate with each other? Is it a deliberate effort on your part or how, how do you sort of aligning your curriculum with those the outcomes? That's a, Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, we did. It's really interesting, Tom. Um, in the early, early planning days, we had two different academic planning, volunteer planning cohorts, we'll say. I pulled some notes in our recent move out from one of those early meetings and shared it with our assistant head, and it was laughable. Uh, all of those things that were so important to our group at that time uh, – I guess some of it is still intact, but really um, it's interesting to see how we've drifted um, Mm -hmm. to the needs of the teachers and the children. We've never cut a corner on curriculum. Uh, What we, we, we've allowed the teachers to uh, make those macro decisions. um, You know, what is going to be our uh, language arts curriculum throughout the school? What's our math program? Um, as the children get older, um, I think our, our teachers become, well, they are at every level, uh, craftsmen and women. Mm-hmm. They have been given the keys to a classroom. Mm-hmm. They've been hired on their experience. And on their first day, I like to walk in the room and say, now, I know, I, I know absolutely nothing about what you're about to do this year, but mm-hmm. you were hired because you've got a great vision and mm-hmm. you're a great teammate. And so what will happen is we, you know, we have division meetings where they certainly have planning. They plan together once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, We have all faculty meetings once a month. But we tell the teachers, uh, you're an entrepreneur. You're setting up your own shop. Uh, Mm -hmm. Told Jamal Haywood, who's our intermediate school math teacher, the math program at, at Episcopal School, which will be successful, is the program that you will build. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we take his track record. Um, we continue to try to, uh, give as much pro- professional development as possible, but, um, it's, it's been really interesting. It's been really interesting. This is, um, in some ways a quilt of experience. Well, you have to really trust your staff to let yeah. them do that. And they have to take that responsibility very seriously. And you also have to be aligned on values to be able to keep it together. A faculty can be, there's some egos on a faculty. People teach oh, yeah. and they have very strong opinions about what it means to be a good teacher or to teach their their uh, subject matter well. And they don't necessarily want someone from the outside saying anything about what should go on in their class. So there's a very high degree of trust you have to have. Absolutely. Um, you can certainly get yourself in trouble in that mod- model. Um, one of the things that we do is uh, our teachers hire the teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I don't, I rarely watch an interview um, mm-hmm. when they do their teaching demonstrations. Um, you know, the faculty will meet after school, after they've met um, mm-hmm. a potential peer. And literally, I mean, if I, if, if we needed to, I could be decisive, but I really want them to take ownership um, mm-hmm. of this team. They've got to be, they need to have, they need to share in the equity um, and I feel like what we've created here, um, and, and it is something that I fundamentally believe in in a company like this, mm-hmm. particularly in a startup company, is a tribal mentality. 
mm-hmm. that we are thin enough of an organization because the, the resources are spread so much that we're going to mm-hmm. hire experienced people mm-hmm. and they are going to if any one of our people miss school any given mm-hmm. day, we'd need a sub administratively mm-hmm. or in the classroom. That's how spread mm-hmm. thin we are. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, part of what uh, these teachers all have um, is, you know, it's a it, it, it is a um, I'm trying to think how, how I would say this. There. They are, this is such a, 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 we depend so much on each other's skills in a mm-hmm. tribe. You know, mm-hmm. humans at some point were probably pretty lonely. We found that we could live longer when we were able to group and we were able to utilize each other's talents and strengths. Populations and communities were born out of that. Uh, and then we built our own cultures. Well, this school's the very same. It's like mm-hmm. I don't have the, the skill set of any other employee here, and nor do they to one another. Mm-hmm. They know that they depend on each other to be accountable and to do really well because at the end of the day, our life is miserable if somebody isn't carrying their weight because there's no yeah. there's no, no backup. Yeah. yeah. So so mm-hmm. if you're going to depend that much on pe- on the teachers, you have to give the teachers the mm-hmm. opportunity to be able to, to pick and choose. And mm-hmm. I've had favorite candidates that have come through the hiring chain here that don't get hired. I can tell you mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, multiple times for reasons that I can't see at that time. But in hindsight, it's like, well, thank God I listened to this person that knew so much more than I did. Mm-hmm. Uh and that's how this thing's getting built. And that's how we're creating the equity. But it's that real tribal mentality. We're only as strong as you are today. Mm-hmm. And if we're all allowed to be the best that we can be, and if we mm-hmm. all feel like we can, then mm-hmm. that really does enable that feeling of safety, that mm-hmm. feeling of being able to be yourself. And and that's when equity comes into play. And, and if we're going to be a, a, a school that's built on diversity and inclusion – we it, equity is an essential ingredient that is non-existent in most diverse uh, communities. And so it's a long winded answer to your question. No, but no. I hope that helps. That's a, tell me, when you say equity, tell me more about what you mean by that. You know, it's interesting. I read a um, I think it was an independent school magazine several, several years ago. I was writing a paper for a master's and um, there was a great piece of research on on all of that. And I'll never forget. It was, I read it once and then I read it twice and I've never forgotten it. And it seems to be uh, a great definition of this sort of realm of our work. Diversity. Mm-hmm. Diversity is getting an invitation to the dance. Mm-hmm. Inclusion. Inclusion is accepting the invitation to the dance and showing up. Equity, the third word in all of that, equity is you're at the dance and you find a dance partner and you have a great time. And most of us know what that feels like at some time in our life. But I will admit at this point, we have diversity. You know, the diversity is here. We have, though, many more invites out in this community than are Mm -hmm. accepting to the dance. Mm-hmm. That is where we are, I think, in our work. Um, however, that being said, particularly in this day and age, uh, we have to be very, very aware of the physical mm-hmm. community that we create and that it mm-hmm. is completely disarming uh, mm-hmm. to any one person that walks through our door. And that is our ultimate goal. Um, our goal this year and what we'll wor- work on as a staff uh, is exactly on that. We're dropping diversity. We're working on inclusion and equity. Mm-hmm. How do we find mm-hmm. dance partners here and how are we sure that it's happening? Um, you know, I, I, part of, I think all of that is get, mm-hmm. going back to, it starts with equity begins with uh, our inhabitants, our teachers. Mm-hmm. And if they feel like they have true quote unquote equity in the decision-making processes and the, and the hiring and the, and the establishment of our academic program and culture, mm-hmm. then then the, the students will feel that authenticity. Um, you know, we we though have to to manufacture 
um, innovative ways to um, to really, I think, offset things that for a guy like me, you know, what was so horrifying to me was to realize, you know, I've got a good heart. I'm a 41 year old, relatively affluent white man. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always realized that. And I realized that, um, you know, that there's a there's a fortune to that. Mm-hmm. But what what I haven't overcome and what has really in the last six months become I've become very aware of is that so many people feel threatened around me and I don't even know it. Mm-hmm. And they're they're threatened by my comfort. They're threatened right. by by that privilege. And so we have to ask all of ourselves in a school um, just because it feels right and it feels mm-hmm. comfortable to mm-hmm. us, right? Probably doesn't mean that it does for everyone. And so mm-hmm. uh, this year we're going to take even um, greater steps, I think, to to try to tie into those equity causes. And mm-hmm. um, obviously we've got the subcommittee uh, on the board, and uh, we've got folks on our staff. Nobody would teach at the school if they didn't. If they weren't quote unquote woke, I mean, nobody would be a trustee. I mean, we all get it. We get right, right. it. That's what this yeah. mission is for. So yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see as we continue this work. So um, one of the things that can be difficult in a private school setting is uh, parents sometimes feel that they're buying an outcome. So there's a consumer orientation to it. Of, I'm paying you this money and I expect this return, um, which is a little counter to what you're describing. Mm-hmm. of building equity in an institution and in essence calling people to go on a journey with you to build to build a new community which is you're they're buying an experience maybe but they're not necessarily buying an outcome have you ever encountered a uh, uh, friction with your your parents do you have to get a certain kind of parent to be it's like to to uh, to be a member of your community it's an interesting question, uh, really interesting question. And, and I'll be honest with you, um, our constituency, our consumer has changed greatly in five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's said amongst in founding school situations that it's a pretty uncanny group of people that come together in those first few years. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this is a group of, of, of folks that are entrusting their children's education uh, on an unknown product and they're paying for it. Um, They don't know what it's going to look like. And particularly in our case, when it wasn't a, you know, it was a modular campus, you've really got to have, I think a strong sense of independence to come to a school like this, Mm -hmm. um, a founding school. And we have very independent founding families that um, all came to this for a little different reason. I think that um, we're starting to see some attrition within those founding families right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're full um, for all in, in our early and our pre-kindergarten to kindergarten sections, first and second grade. You know, they're all full. Mm-hmm. It's those founding grades that sees the attrition, because I think what happens is um, as you be, continue to conform as a community, mm-hmm. um, you're just you can't help it. But be you become a bit. Um, I'd say everything yeah, conforms and yeah. those that are innately independent, mm-hmm. um, they're going to push back against that conformity. And so mm-hmm. I think that there is um, due to our, our the refinement of the of the school, mm-hmm. we've probably found better feedback from the families that have come to and found us because of our reputation and because of mm-hmm. our track record. And we're getting mm-hmm. You're better than we ever thought you could be mm-hmm. uh, to the families that have been here that are frustrated now um, that used to, you know, they could text message me whenever they wanted. There were only three mm-hmm. of us on campus. I mean, I had mm-hmm. to open the door. Mm-hmm. Uh, the accessibility is different. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we were there. I, I definitely was very desperate not to lose families and to try to mm-hmm. make this a, a one stop shop. But you can't mm-hmm. do that once you serve a a greater number of people. And so to answer your question, I would say that the founding consumer base is struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, The consumer base that has come to us through word of mouth and wanting to see if we made it had some interest and, and they're very happy. The um, Mm -hmm. little to no attrition in that group. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we have record numbers of applications coming in. As, a, as I mentioned, the younger grades are full. But I do think that that is starting to narrow our focus. We're becoming, our school culture is much more like this than it was yeah. spread afar in the early days when we were just throwing against the wall trying to see what stuck. We were trying yeah. to create tradition, and now we have it. Well, I think um, not everybody survives the evolution of a startup business into a more mature business. Um, so it's often it's common for um, employees or investors or customers even to um, to leave because the organization changes. And to your point, it becomes something maybe different than what they signed on for. And so they go someplace else. There's a, there's a, a natural attrition in customers that should happen as a business understands and focuses itself more. Um, now, I mean, there's, there's certain businesses that, um, you know, the, the concept of losing a customer is, is anathema to them, but I don't think an independent school is one of those businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, you know, a piece of advice I got from somebody um, is that, you know, you're, you don't want to look for any customer, you want to look for the right customers. You know, that you, you can't serve everybody, so know well who you can, try to attract those people. And uh, there's a process of winnowing that goes both ways. You're, you're looking for the right fit for your business, and they're looking for the right service to fit their need. And if, if you um, make that match, everybody's happier in the end. Um, so understanding what's the right attrition, what kind of attrition is there, and um, and making sure you don't you know you're not losing people who you know fit your profile like oh my god they, these people should be ideal mm-hmm. for us we how could we it's terrible if they leave mm-hmm. um, but it, it takes it takes um, courage and commitment about kind of who you are mm-hmm. um, so I want to I want to change gears a little bit and ask you uh, so a long time ago I taught uh, for just a year so not very long and. Um, one of the reasons why I got out was stories like this. So, you know, I was teaching ninth grade English. I'm collecting locker money. And um, sweet girl, um, you know, one of the students I really liked. And that was a big problem I have is that there were kids I liked and kids I didn't. And I think you're, you don't, you shouldn't be teaching if there's kids you like and kids you don't. Um, so she came and, and I said, uh, do you have your locker money? And she says, well, no, my, my mom's gone away. Oh, when's she coming back? Never. Hmm. And you get, you know, you you get a window into suffering of children when you're teaching. Um, How do you, um, I couldn't take it. I mean, for me, it was too difficult to be around what was um, sometimes palpable pain among very young people. Um, How do you uh, live with that? You know, I think that um, I think you're right. If it's mm-hmm. something that you're not comfortable with necessarily, um, you can't. The school community is is not is not for you in, in the sense that it's going to happen every day. Um, mm-hmm. There is absolutely nothing more awkward than having an intervention with a family for any personal reasons, uh, whether and, and they can be any number of them. Um, and, but as schools, we have to do that. And, and we also we get to know our, our, our students really, really well. Um, my part of the reason why I'm an Episcopal school head, you know, Episcopal schools aren't an evangelical. It's not an evangelical Christian community. And I have no interest in being I, mean, I don't feel called at all to be a priest or, or, or to get into the ordainment process. But I do feel strongly about helping people. And there's something that I really enjoy. Um, I'll never forget waking up on a snowy morning to hear that one of our students had had, um, you know, they had the um, appendicitis overnight and mm-hmm. appendix pulled out. And my favorite thing to do is to drive to the children's hospital and to go up there with some comic books and a coffee for mom or dad who's ever in there and just check, how are you doing? I mean, those are the moments that I think we really actually do our work um, mm-hmm. here at a school. It's We always think it's the uh, reading, writing, arithmetic, and it's that teaching, but it's actually how we treat people. And it's building mm-hmm. trust so that we can build communi- uh, relationships. And so 
I take a situation like that and embrace mm-hmm. it and see it as an, uh, a, an opportunity. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, it's not always easy and they're emotional conversations, but at least they're real. And at least mm-hmm. we're helping that child might get a little harder before it gets better. But if I don't do it, who will? Mm-hmm. Um, if this, if our faculty doesn't do it, who will? And yeah, it, it is really hard. And I think that, um, to your point, just one more point on that. Um, and we were talking about the consumers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our, we have turnover on our, on our tremendous turnover on our, um, trustees and staff. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I think it's hard. It's a really gritty when you're small mm-hmm. and you're a startup and you're dealing with a community that's so, intimately involved with people, they rub a lot closer than they like to. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we're having a problem, you know, it's the homeroom teacher who's in the meeting with me or what, you know, they, they mm-hmm. are exposed to a lot more than um, the typical rapport. And so it is stressful here. That added mm-hmm. level, I think, of there's nothing between you and this family's problems is mm-hmm. stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's for me, it's something that keeps my fire burning. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you wouldn't have it any other way. No, I want to know what your problem is. I want to know mm-hmm. what, how I can help. Can we help you? We mm-hmm. say to every family in the admissions problem process, look, we're about to, to form a very triangular relationship. That mm-hmm. is uh, the school, your child and you. And we mm-hmm. all three have to be a system that works together. And when one of those points breaks, right, right. it if the the wheel falls off the axle and and it's not mm-hmm. right anymore, so mm-hmm. I want them to get you know the hardest for me is is the divorce because mm-hmm. um, because I think that uh, that becomes a um, a real struggle where um, because you can't talk to the parents together. Death is something right. different. We're all dealing with the same issue. Mm-hmm. A divorce is a pulling, and I mm-hmm. we have to remain constant for the child. Right. Um, remaining centered there. And so a lot of it depends on what we're dealing with. But mm-hmm. when we, um, one of the things that we learn about by having a diverse community though, is mm-hmm. that we've had to keep a lot of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not, I mean, we're making lunches all the time. Sometimes kids don't have them. Yeah. Um, and you just got to be smart about figuring out, don't embarrass the parents. You don't have to call and ask. You can go check their bag. Right. And right. You know, if they haven't had lunch, two days out of the week, you know, you got to check it every day. Um, yeah. So we get proactive about it to support mm-hmm. the children quietly as well. Mm-hmm. So what I'm um, changing gears a bit here. Talk about COVID. How are your parents reacting to COVID and uh, how are you as a school uh, adjusting to COVID? Uh, it's one of those, this is, this is really, um, it's really incredible. I was on a call with, uh, probably 50 independent school heads three weeks ago, and we all talked about how we were coming back. You, of course, mm-hmm. the public school system has said that it'll be distance learning to, till Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at the minimum, most independent schools are going back. No two are doing it the exact same. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing it. We're being very, very cautious. We're calling it a, a cautious reentry. Um, we actually are beginning with distance learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that a third of our parents are, um, really upset about that because they find, mm-hmm. feel that it's hardship on mm-hmm. their day, their daily work lives. Um, we have another group that is, thinks it's the perfect decision. And we have a group that says, even if things improve, can we still distance learn if you mm-hmm. decide to go back? Mm-hmm. So there's no silver bullet. There's no real mm-hmm. answer. I think we, in this era, we got to go, um, with our better senses. And my judgment at this point is that um, elements are 60% worse than they were the last time we were in school and we were not mm-hmm. in school, but mm-hmm. we are better about um, being safe and we know how to live with this better. And so we're setting up outdoor classrooms um, so that the children will all have um, elected opportunities to be on campus. For example, pre-kindergarten will be here twice a week. Um, you don't have to come, but pre-K will have a class for about three hours outdoors. Um, advisee groups will meet outside here. And um, we will begin to re-enter uh, this facility as we mm-hmm. watch best practices develop. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that we're going after, Tom, we're not so necessarily 
you know, within this constituency group, um, so many of the symptoms in children, you, you know, that they, they may be COVID positive, but they don't have a temperature. And so right. I think the rate, the temperature screenings and things like that, we're not going to invest in that structure. We're investing mm-hmm. in our air quality, mm-hmm. uh, and air filtration. And, um, we are using this as a, as a teaching experience to our children, how you, um, operate in public in a time like this. They're going to have to wear and learn to wear their face masks. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to have to learn how to use specific entrances and exits. And, you know, we, there was that pre 9 11 world that we all lived in. Right. We just, we'd run onto an airplane. Mm-hmm. You know, that never happens. And it's, you couldn't even imagine doing it anymore. It just seems mm-hmm. silly. Mm-hmm. Schools will become like that. And, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, what I think is going to happen is that we'll eventually get back into school. Um, I think that I just got tested. I'm going to regularly get tested every two weeks mm-hmm. or so to make sure mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I know that I'm safe and I can reassure mm-hmm. folks. And I'm, I'm encouraging our staff to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. But we're never going to force anybody into a situation where they're uncomfortable. And I will allow any teacher to distance teach that wants to. Mm-hmm. I'll allow any teacher to come into school and teach from their classrooms distantly mm-hmm. if they want to. It, it's mm-hmm. I don't think there's any right answer. I think we're learning as we go and we need to watch each other operate. Um, and and uh, we'll get back into it. But, you know, just like we've woken up in the past and you rate at 6 a.m., you look to see whether there's a snow mm-hmm. day. Mm hmm. I think you're going to get a health report from schools before too long. Uh, we're closed mm-hmm. for flu for the week or. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be a health check. So I think this is a really as difficult as it is. Mm-hmm. We're going to t- make advancements as a community that are going to ensure that the self, this safety and health of the school and its teachers and the and the greater mm-hmm. communities. Mm-hmm. Now, when the um, when the kids uh, do come back, or even in a distance learning uh, situation, are you um, going to address um, Black Lives Matter or George Floyd and um, the impact on uh, um, civil rights. With, I mean, your, your kids are, what is it, uh, fourth grade through pre-K, is that right? How do you guys deal with, sub- with subjects like that with that age group? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Um, we are not going to let an opportunity pass. And uh, honestly, the, the easy answer to that question is this movement that we're all a part of is why the school was founded. The school was founded for this city 30 years from now. The product of what our work is doing today mm-hmm. um, will see to the sky rises and, and see to the government capital. And, you know, if our children, uh, I, I don't know that it's possible to ever see no color. I don't know what that means. I'll never forget mm-hmm. in pre-kindergarten two mm-hmm. years ago on the playground when uh, a young African-American girl said, that another boy who was Caucasian was her pink brother. Uh, and <laughs> you can't tell me those children. And he was a little red faced pink <laughs> running around outside. And, and yeah. you can't tell me the kids don't naturally see color, but we, what yeah. we can tell, what we can do is create justice and we can create yeah. equity. And, you know, mm-hmm. one of the greatest things um, about the move that I've made to this city uh, is that, you know, my son could go to school probably just about anywhere. We figure out a way to get him in or whatever. And, mm-hmm. but his best friend speaks Spanish at home now. And, mm-hmm. uh, I don't speak Spanish and neither, neither does my wife, but now we commune through apps with their parents mm-hmm. and, and we hang out and, um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, to, to, to walk, out and to, to hear him engaging even right now you know the children are all on their screens it's mm-hmm. they're lonely i mean it's the mm-hmm. game and 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 part yeah. of distance learning reconnected them all um and to know that these children you know there are my, my son's friends mm-hmm. some don't have fathers some have all the money in the world they're grammy award winners some speak different languages at home they're mm-hmm. black they're white they're hispanic uh, they're Asian American, but for my son, these are his friends. And uh, maybe through his access, which he doesn't realize he has right now, mm-hmm. his best friends can walk with him through life, and that he's going to, that we're going to affect the workplaces, and that um, 
you know, the, the city that, uh, our children inherit will be a better place because we see that it's better for them all to be together mm-hmm. learning in a place like this. And we will absolutely use this movement. And we say unequivocally, uh, we, I just, it's an interesting, just had a, we're in a silent phase of a capital campaign, mm-hmm. just had a $60,000 gift. That mm-hmm. gift names the parlor out here, the, the main mm-hmm. hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, what's amazing is that um, the, the, uh, the, the, the donor mm-hmm. is named it after John Lewis. Yeah. So it's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not, this is mm-hmm. not about uh, the glamour of the typical independent school with the monuments. We're renaming the floors selfishly after black leaders. And mm-hmm. uh, that's exactly what the ethos of this project is all about. And I mm-hmm. think it's exactly why uh, people are getting involved. We don't need another independent school in Nashville, but mm-hmm. we need a school like this. We need a school mm-hmm. that uh, is opening its doors to anyone uh, who is seeking uh, a new education in a small class size in a diverse community where mm-hmm. we embrace each other for who we are and mm-hmm. our teachers meet the children where they are each day. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we pride ourselves on the fact that we have four dyslexic learners here at school and, and, and we learned that the diagnosis for all four and they're all still here doing fine. So, um, Harrison, if people want to help Episcopal School learn more about it, apply, what's the best way for them to get information? Informa- uh, information is best found on our website, mm-hmm. uh, esnashville.org. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a, um, boy, the website at one time was the only thing we were. Uh, and, then we, <laughs> uh, and now the website tell, talks a lot about what we've become. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but certainly the best way to get to know us is to come see us, particularly mm-hmm. if if you're here in the area. Nashville gets a lot of folks that travel through and mm-hmm. um, we love nothing more than to welcome educators from around the country into the school, mm-hmm. around the world, folks mm-hmm. that are interested in looking at a new model and uh, just come be with us. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the best place to, to, to learn who we are. But uh, we are just delighted um, for the interest and the response that we've had from our community, we've now procured uh, over seven individual donors and foundations. Uh, we don't have an angel donor. Nobody's given mm-hmm. more than, uh, you know, $100,000 at one time. Uh, but mm-hmm. we've raised nearly $5 million since the beginning. So mm-hmm. a lot of people um, are feeling this project, and, and uh, we're so grateful. It just puts fuel in our tank and keeps us fired up. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Harrison, it's been awesome talking to you. I really appreciate you taking some time. I really appreciate you and Tom. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity. The Fortune's Path podcast is a production of Fortune's Path. We help businesses build better products and better customer relationships by pursuing virtue. Deep thinking, hardworking, always learning. Fortune's path, because fortune is often found in the path of reason. Special thanks to Harrison Stewart for being our guest. Music and editing of the Fortune's Path podcast by Ted Noser. I'm Tom Noser. Thanks for listening, and I hope we meet along Fortune's Path. Harrison Stewart is the driving force behind one of Nashville's most dynamic new institutions, the Episcopal School of Nashville. Harrison is the real deal, the kind of level five leader who can build a vital organization from scratch. Harrison started his career as a director of development and a sixth grade math teacher at the Episcopal School of Knoxville. He left there to become the director of admissions at his alma mater, the Woodbury Forest School in Virginia, where he could have had a great job his whole life and never lost a minute's sleep worrying about payroll. 
Instead, he chose to pursue his dream and join a group of enterprising Nashvillians who wanted to build a quality Episcopal school anyone could afford, a school that welcomes everyone and a school that's an essential force for good in its community. Harrison is our guest on this episode of the Fortune's Path podcast. The Fortune's Path podcast is a production of Fortune's Path. We help businesses pursue better products and better customer relationships by pursuing virtue. Deep thinking, hardworking, always learning, Fortune's Path, because fortune is often found in the path of reason. Special thanks to Harrison Stewart for being our guest. Music and editing of the Fortune's Path podcast are by Ted Noser. I'm Tom Noser. Thanks for listening, and I hope we meet along Fortune's Path.